Grace to you all in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, open my mouth. My lips may proclaim your praise. Father, where you speak, and Spirit, where you descend, and Jesus, where you are, there is life. Jesus, you did not despise to come down to us to get in the midst of our chaos and death so that you might raise us by the Spirit to new life. We pray that you would do that again this morning anew as we hear your word proclaimed. Help us to hear the Father's voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have gathered together this morning, and by we, I mean us, the men and the women, and yes, the children this morning. We've gathered together in this place to witness a death, to witness a death. And I know this sounds like church language, yeah, 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 death this, life that, and it's true. We do, we do proclaim a death every Sunday, as Paul says to the Corinthians, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, as long as you eat the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we proclaim death every Sunday, but it's not every Sunday that we witness death. And today, a baptism Sunday, the Sunday where we remember the baptism of our Lord Jesus, we encounter death. We face it down, we watch it happen. And I'm not trying to be trite or flowery here, I'm not trying to dress up an otherwise simple ceremony with fancy language. I'm trying to speak how Christians are supposed to speak, which is to say plainly and truly. We're supposed to speak of what is real, what is actual, what is true. And so when I say that we're here to witness death, I mean death. And I'll explain what I mean in a minute. But for now, I just want to point out this is unusual. It's unusual to intentionally confront or consider or to witness death. I don't know about you, but I spend most of my time studiously ignoring death. I don't particularly want to have to think about my own mortality. And I definitely don't want to think about the mortality of those I love. And I don't especially want to die. And so, day to day, I'm generally quite good. You might be too at forgetting about death. Still, in the midst of our daily living, our getting and spending, our working and resting, we're confronted in certain moments with the shock and the awe and the relativizing power of death. There are these moments that we can't avoid where the chaos boiling just under the surface of our lives erupts, and we are forced to remember that when it comes to human life, death is the rule, not the exception. And one such moment happened on Monday night this past week. There was an NFL game, and during that game, a safety for the Buffalo Bills named DeMar Hamlin took a routine tackle, and he stood up, And then he immediately collapsed, but this wasn't a routine injury, and it became clear that Hamlin, who was now in cardiac arrest, needed emergency intervention, and so everything stopped as the paramedics and the trainers administered CPR for nearly 10 minutes before an ambulance hurried him, unresponsive, to a hospital. Now, DeMar Hamlin is a real man and not an object lesson. I'm not trying to use him in some way. I have prayed along with many others for his full recovery, and thanks be to God, it seems like that's the road that he is on. But it still was this dramatic 
mass cultural example of the way in which death can interrupt and utterly relativize the importance of what we typically call normal life because the players on the field who are paid handsomely to be there and some 60,000 fans in the stadium and millions more who were watching this game on TV, they were interrupted. Their normal Monday night entertainment, their normal Monday night work, and they were interrupted and they had to stand or sit or kneel in shock and fear and prayer. And suddenly this game and the playoff picture and the National Football League and all the ad revenue that makes it run, it was revealed to be just incalculably unimportant because questions of life and death had come forward. So in the face of death, football suddenly it's, it's just a game. It's, it's not even a game. It's nothing. But we don't, we don't even need these big cultural moments most of the time because death is eager to confront us in more personal ways. It can be a sudden or persistent illness that invades our bodies or our families. It can be the merciless process of aging. It can be the passing of a parent or a sibling or a spouse, or a child. Maybe their merciless absent keeps death near to your heart and mind without respite. Just this week, I was catching up with some old friends, and I learned of a friend who this week lost his 21-year-old nephew, and other friends who have lost three pregnancies in as many years, and still other dear friends who just last month lost their two-year-old daughter. And so we find ourselves crying and weeping or stunned into silence or paralyzed on our beds and we cry out like the Anglican burial service does. Man born of woman has but a short time to live and is full of misery. He springs up and is cut down like a flower. In the midst of life, we are in death. And as we're reeling in these moments, or perhaps as we're raging against the dying of the light, we often find ourselves crying out to God, what do you have to say about all of this? God, what is your answer to our fear, our pain, our death? And this morning, as we've gathered together, we see and hear his answer as Jesus comes from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But To understand that we're dealing with death this morning, we really have to dig into Scripture because you heard the Gospel read and you probably heard death is not mentioned. Nobody dies in Matthew 3. In Matthew 3, we start with John. And he's at the Jordan River and there's crowds gathering to hear him preach. And he's a powerful preacher. He's as good as Elijah must have been. And the crowds there, they're convicted and they're moved to be baptized by John for repentance. And John is is doing the work the Lord has told him to do. He's preparing the way of the Lord, as Isaiah said. And people are confessing their sins before God and man. They're seeking God's forgiveness. They're readying their hearts to receive God's anointed. And as they do all of this, John keeps going on and on and on about one who is coming after him. One whose baptism will not just be for repentance, but for fire judgment and for spirit life. You think you've seen, you're having some sort of significant encounter with Yahweh, John says, right now? Just wait. You haven't seen anything yet, but he's coming, and then suddenly, there he is. There he is. The last we heard of Jesus in Matthew was his infant cries. We haven't heard anything. 
for a whole chapter. And then suddenly there he is, and he's 30 now. This is the year when priests began their ministry. And here he is at the Jordan. And you might be wondering, as I have for a long time, people are coming to John to be baptized for repentance, to confess their sins, right? So why is Jesus being baptized? Jesus is sinless, right? He doesn't commit evil acts or harbor evil thoughts. He, he offers proper worship. He loves his Father in obedience. So why is Jesus baptized? And if you find yourself asking this question, you're in good company because that is exactly what John asks. I need to be baptized by you. You come to me? I think you might be sending the wrong message here, Jesus. John is essentially saying, you're the one who takes away the sins of the world, not who needs to repent of them. But Jesus answers him, let it be so. For thus, that is for me to be baptized, it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. Now there's a Bible phrase if we've ever heard one. What does it mean? You might remember at the beginning of Matthew 3, John's main point in his preaching is this, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. And we can think of righteousness, this really big concept in scripture, we can think of it as finding or making or walking in straight paths. Righteousness means being and doing what you were made to be and meant to do. And because we were made by God and because we were meant by God, righteousness looks like relating to that God, being faithful to that God in worship and love and obedience and communion. Righteousness means listening to God, loving God, doing what he commands. But those paths that John's talking about need to be made straight. Why? Because we keep wandering off. We keep making them crooked. Everyone down there at the Jordan is being baptized for repentance. They're baptized because they're unrighteous. They've left unrighteous, or they've left righteousness very much unfulfilled. But why are they baptized? To ask one more question as we're thinking along these lines. Why are they baptized? Why do they go down into water? And here, Here we get to see some of God's just brilliance. From time to time, I I write from time to time, and I'm blown away by how good of a writer God is. That is, he writes actual creation, so it's much more impressive to begin with. But just, he's just an incredible artist because God made water. He made it out of nothing. And God made baptism, and God made forgiveness, thanks be to God. And God so made these things with certain properties. He made water with certain properties, and he made forgiveness with certain properties such that these can speak to one another, can make sense of one another. So when we look at water, water is a solvent, as you all learned in sixth grade science. Water purifies things unstick or unstain in water. So when people come to the Jordan and confess their sins before God, and commit to repentance, John then, as God's minister, makes this forgiveness visible. He makes it palpable by splashing around in water. So people's bodies are marked by this water. They're marked by the change that God is working in them. And in some sense, because water is a solvent, the sins that they've confessed stay behind in that water. This water is full of their sin. Now, not in a final way are they forgiven. These repenters, they they come up out of the water of the Jordan, and they're going to go sin again. 
They don't have a lasting righteousness, even if they've been forgiven. They just have repentance. They know that they're not righteous, and that's a good thing. It's good to know that you're not righteous, and it's good if that leads you to confession and repentance, but that knowledge doesn't make you righteous. It doesn't fulfill all righteousness. So these people down in the Jordan who are confessing their sins, they're going to sin again, and they're going to need their, their sin forgiven again. They're going to need to confess again, and all the waters on all the face of the earth could not permanently wash away their sin. But Jesus says he comes to be baptized to what? To fulfill all righteousness, to establish full righteousness. And he doesn't do that just by, you know, flexing his perfect righteousness muscles so we can see how it really should have been done in the first place. Jesus fulfills human righteousness. He does that. But even more than that, Jesus displays God's righteousness. Because God, too, is righteous. God walks by the straight paths that he's made. God acts like God is. And Jesus, we're told in Scripture, is the perfect image. Just the dazzling display of God's righteousness. Jesus shows us what God's righteousness looks like. And what does it look like here at the Jordan? If I were writing the story of reality, I would probably guess that God's righteousness looks like perfect judgment and obliteration of the unrighteous. He wipes them out. He cuts them off. He comes to the Jordan, looks around, sees these wretched sinners, and he condemns them who have made such a mess of their lives and such a mess of their families and such a mess of their communities and such a mess of their relationship with the God who meant them for better. But that's not what it looks like here for Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus shows us, displays to us, that God's righteousness is made known most gloriously when he saves people. And he saves people, he saves people not just by condemning them, but by coming to them and then not just coming to them in human form, but not despising to get down with them in their unrighteousness and sin and chaos and death. Jesus steps into that Jordan, not so that he can wash his own sins away. He steps down into the waters of the Jordan so that he can take on and soak in and bear all of those sins which the the unrighteous have done. Here we see a God who becomes man, not just to show us how it's done, how we should have done it in the first place, but we see as Jesus steps into the Jordan how God is willing to get right into the thick of our sin, right into the midst of our chaos, our mess, and our death. God becomes man not to show us a detour around death and judgment, but to take it upon himself, to bear it for us, Jesus shows in the Jordan that he identifies with sinners. He's chosen to do this. He chooses to identify with you in your sin and your unrighteousness and your mess and your death. Luther says it's as if Christ wanted to say, although I'm myself not a sinner, yet nevertheless, I now bring with me the sin of the whole world. And now I am only a sinner and I am the greatest sinner in the whole world. See, to fulfill all righteousness Jesus gets down into our unrighteousness. To fulfill the promises of the covenant, Jesus bears their curse. To fulfill all righteousness, Jesus goes down into the waters of chaos and death. 
the waters of chaos and death. This is what water has been from the beginning. Think back to creation. God creates something out of nothing. And at first, this something is without form and void and darkness is over the face of the deep. What does that look like? I don't really know. But scripture says it looks something like water. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So from the beginning, before God starts to form and fill that creation, it's chaos, and that chaos is the chaos of water. It's disorder. Fast forward several generations, and when do we next see water covering the earth? It's with Noah. See, by the time of Noah, sin and death have spread all over the face of the earth, and God's judgment comes down upon it in the form of water. The flood makes literal what was already the case, that the world is drowned in sin and death. The flood confirms God's law that sin results in death. And again, water is this place of chaos, and it is void of life. And then we see it at the Red Sea, when the waters crush and destroy the Egyptians who oppose Yahweh. It happens again and again that water is chaos, water is judgment, water is death. And so it's not super surprising that the Israelites are landlubbers, right? They just, they stick to the deserts, they stick to the cities, and sort of the one story you have of somebody going to sea is Jonah, and he ends up in the water and in a fish, and there's like this water thing I'm not sure about. Because water in the Old Testament and in so much of the ancient world, is understood as the place of chaos and death and judgment. It's where the things we don't understand lie. It's the thing where death waits. And that is the water that Jesus steps down into. In Mark 10, James and John ask a favor of Jesus. They say, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, when you get powerful in Jerusalem, we know it's coming. We would like the good seats, please. We'd like to be at your right hand, If you can have two places at your right hand, that'd be cool. It's your choice, but like, we'd love to be there. We'd like to share in the power and the glory. And Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. And then he says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? We know what Jesus means by this. He's been telling it to them pretty explicitly. He's saying, I'm going to die The baptism that Jesus speaks of is the baptism of death on a cross. So the baptism that begins in the waters of the Jordan, that begins Jesus' earthly ministry, it concludes, because Jesus' whole ministry that starts at his baptism, it concludes at the cross. It's aimed straight for the cross the whole time. This This is the second baptism. This is where Jesus will bear fully the chaos and the shame and the pain and, yes, the death, which are rightfully ours, where Jesus will go down all the way to the depths and even into the depths of hell for you. Jesus transforms baptism by being baptized. So that Christian baptism, it's not just a baptism of repentance, although it is that, but it is a baptism of death. That's what Paul says explicitly in Romans 6. Do you not know? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized have been baptized into what? We've been baptized into Christ Jesus and into his death. And now, hopefully, we can start to see why I said that we're witnessing a death this morning. See, when Nathan gets down into the water, he enters the waters of chaos 
and judgment and death. In a real sense, Nathan, this precious new life, the handiwork of a God who loves him and who loves his precious parents, Taylor and Emily, this Nathan is going to enter the waters of baptism and by God's word and God's action, he's going to die. But he will not die alone. We're crucified, yes, but we're crucified with Christ, Paul says in Galatians 2, because Nathan goes down not alone but with Jesus into the waters. Because he goes down with Jesus, though he dies there, he does not stay there because it's Jesus, because it is God himself who goes down into the waters of chaos and sin and judgment and death. Because it's Jesus, the story does not end with a corpse at the bottom of the sea. By the Father's word and by the Spirit's power, Jesus fulfills all righteousness by turning those very waters, the waters of chaos and death, into waters of new life and recreation. And this too is how it has always been. Remember back at creation, again, this place where the waters are chaos and death, but who's there? It's God's Spirit hovering over the face. And then we hear God's voice, and when the Spirit and God's voice are there, what happens? The waters are brought to order. They're ordered. The creation is formed and filled. There's beauty. There is life at the flood, the flood of judgment. God has preserved Noah and his family, and then what do they do? They send out a dove, right? They send it out three times. The dove goes out to see if the waters have receded, and it comes back, and there's nothing. And then they send the dove out a second time, and the dove comes back, and what's it carrying? An olive branch. An ol- the branch of an olive tree, that thing that we make oil from, and we use oil for anointing, and there's a whole sermon about anointing at Jesus' baptism that I just don't have time for. But next time we're going to do it because it's amazing. Right now we're talking about death. But the, the dove comes back with an olive branch. So the waters are beginning to recede. There's going to be land on which we can build new life again. So they send out the dove a third time, and then what? Who knows? We don't hear from the dove again. The dove is out there somewhere, and the waters recede, and the land rises, and new life starts again. Of course, you've read the Old Testament, or you've at least heard the stories. It sort of happens again and again. There's sin, and there's judgment and there's repentance, and there's forgiveness, and there's sin, and there's judgment, and there's repentance, and there's forgiveness, and the cycle sort of keeps going on and on. The land has risen out of the waters, but it's not solid land. There's still judgment. There's still not full life, and then, and then, in Matthew 3, what do we see? Where has that dove been? I don't know, but the dove comes again in Matthew 3, and it lands where? It lands on Jesus, and it comes to rest. The Spirit has been searching. The Spirit has been searching for land that is solid, solid ground, something unstained by sin, something un, un, uh, what's uncorrupted by evil. He's been looking for the first fruits of a new creation, and the Spirit finds it, and the dove lands on Jesus, and the dove rests on Jesus. And it's by the power of the Spirit that Jesus is able to turn death to life. Because where the Spirit is, and where the voice of the Father it speaks, there is life. Where the Spirit is, and where the Father speaks, there is life. Jesus shares the baptism of our death. He gets down into the waters. He gets soaked and saturated in it so that we might receive a baptism of new life, of rebirth. Whoever is in Christ, behold, behold, whoever is in Christ is what? A new creation. 
The old has passed away, is swallowed. The new has come. And so as Nathan goes down into the water and comes back up out of the water, he is given in God's mercy that which he by nature does not have. Nathan was born, which is a glorious gift, but it's not enough. Jesus says he must be born again. His sins need to be forgiven. And I can't do that for him. And Taylor and Emily can't do that for him. Our sin has to be forgiven by the death of Jesus. We need to be united to that Jesus so that we can go through death and rise to new life. Nathan needs to be born not just of woman, but of water and the Spirit. And so I would exhort all of you here, if you have not been united to Jesus, if you have not trusted him and been joined to him by baptism, come to the waters. Trust in him and come to these waters because you know, I don't have to tell you, you know that you will or you have and you will again face the waters of chaos and the waters of death. And you will enter the waters of judgment, but you don't have to do so alone. Jesus has gone before you that he might bring you through the waters and give you new life. And if you have already been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit who creates and recreates, I exhort you this morning to return to your baptism and to remember your baptism and to renew your baptismal vows Do it while while this baptism happens. As the waters cover Nathan's head, remember that God has spoken his promise of faithfulness over you too. If this morning you feel palpably the waters of chaos and sin and death rising around you and coming up to your neck, closing in on you, remember in this baptism that Jesus has already gone down to the very depths for you and he will bring you through them in the ark of his body, the church. And as Nathan is raised from the font, well, as he's sealed with oil, remember that the Holy Spirit, that dove who brings new life, dwells within you. Dwells within you and is working that new life into its fullness. And as Nathan is raised from the font and his little hair is toweled off, strain your ears. Strain your ears to hear the Father say to you because he is saying it to you, this too is my beloved child. Remember this morning the sole hope that we have in the waters of chaos and death and judgment. Remember the only hope that those who have died in the Lord and those who are yet to die in the Lord have. Our only hope is this, that if we have been joined with Jesus in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This remains our only hope in life and in the churning waters of chaos and death. This is our only hope that we belong not to ourselves. We are not our own, but we belong body and soul, in life and in death, to our Savior Jesus Christ, to the Spirit who gives us life, and to the Father who says to you, this is my beloved. Amen.